It was about 70 years ago uh, when a world-renowned scholar of the classics and uh, the classics scholars were basically literature nerds who translate and read and speak ancient languages and texts. Uh, so we're talking about a classic definition of a classicist for those of you who know what that means. So about 70 years ago or so, a world-renowned scholar of the classics named Dr. Ryu, R-I-E-U, completed what is still today considered one of the greatest modern translations into English of Homer. H-O-M-E-R. We all know who Homer is, right? <laughs> you have a, yeah, I know who he is. Sure. Yeah. This is, we're not talking about baseball. This is not baseball. This is a poet named Homer, H-O-M-E-R, Iliad and the Odyssey. So he was translating Homer into English. And it's still considered one of the, the, the finest translations into English. So he finished this when he was about 60 years old. And this man, Dr. Ryu, had been an agnostic all his life. He didn't think that you could know whether a God exists. He believed that humans could not know anything beyond the natural, material, and physical world. That was it. That's where it stayed, materialism. So a supernatural deity was deemed by agnostics as unknowable. And that's where Dr. Ryu was on the issue. So he had just completed about 70 years ago this translation of Homer into English. And the, the publishers approached him and, and was so successful that they approached him and said, hey, could you do a translation of the Gospels? The, the, the modern, uh, a modern translation of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Well, Dr. Ryu accepted the task. And his son, knowing where Dr. Ryu stood on whether or not God exists, heard this and said this. It will be interesting to see what Father makes of the Gospels. And then he said this. It will be even more interesting to see what the four Gospels make of my Father. Turns out he didn't have to wonder very long because within about a year, Dr. Ryu, who was a lifelong agnostic, responded to the Gospels he was translating and became a follower of Christ. Which is to say, friends, there is power inherent in the Word of God that transforms people's lives. And so as we begin a fresh study of the Gospel of Mark here, I, I want to ask you that question. I want to invite you to ask that question for yourself. What will studying and reading and getting your heart into this book make of you? What will reading and studying the Gospel of Mark, the account of the life of Jesus, do to you? Because it can if you'll let it. How will it change you? Will you let its truth make its way into you so that you will be someone different at the end than you were at the beginning? Because, friends, there is a power inherent in the Word of God that can transform you if you will let it, if you will apply yourself to it and get your nose into it and have your heart changed by it. So that's my hope for us. That's my hope for you as we jump into uh, this, wonderful, this wonderful account of the life of Jesus. Now, and I realize as we jump into uh, 
Mark here, that, that reading Mark, if those of you who come prepared today have read Mark, maybe all of Mark, maybe just Mark 1, I'd encourage you to read through Mark once a week as we're doing this. And, and you'll find as you read Mark, if you haven't, it's sort of like being, uh, sort of like being dropped onto a speeding train uh, without knowing where it's headed and, and, and suddenly being jilted, sort of jolted into this new experience of, wait, where are we headed? What's going on? It's like the ADD of the Gospels. It's like the ADD of the Gospels because you'll read in just a few verses, well, Jesus went here and he did this. And then suddenly Mark says, immediately he left and went the other way. And you're standing here going, wait, Jesus, come back. I don't even know what you, like, I don't even know what you did here. Don't go there yet. So it's sort of like that. It goes lots of directions. And there are lots of things that we're not going to cover throughout our study of Mark. But I want this to be an opportunity for you to have someone like me on Sunday say, hey, I'll, I'll be a navigator for the big picture a navigator for the big picture of what's going on. Uh, So that's what we're going to do today. And as I prayed in the prayer, what we're going to do today is is refocus our lives around the truth that God tells us who we are and God tells us what we do. And we're called to be followers who do what he did. So let's look and see what that means. Jumping in here in Mark, verse 1. We'll look at verse 1, and those of you who have been here for a while will not be surprised to hear me say we're going to spend quite a bit of time on this one verse. So we'll spend some time on Mark 1 because it's kind of a key for the book. It's a a title for the book, and then we'll spend some significant time in uh, 14 through 20. So let's go ahead and jump in. Verse 1 says this. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Verse 1 is the title for the book, and it's a key to its contents. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's the title for the book and the beginning of its contents, uh, the key for its contents. And, and Mark begins here with the word beginning. It's the very first word in the whole book. Beginning is the beginning. And Mark uses this word beginning here on purpose because Mark has read and knows his scripture. He's read Genesis 1.1 where it speaks of the creation of the heavens of the earth, the creation of the universe. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So in Genesis 1.1, the first word is beginning. So beginning is the beginning of Genesis, and beginning here is the beginning of Mark. So by using this word to begin this book, he's calling to mind for us the previous activity of God in Genesis. It's Mark's way of saying, hey, remember that? Pretty big deal, huh? Remember the beginning, beginning? Pretty big deal, the creation of the universe. Well, just like in Genesis, just like in the beginning of everything, God's up here to something really big. I mean, this is, this is consequential like that's consequential. That's why he's starting with this word here. He's saying, what I'm about to tell you is as important as it gets. This is as important as it gets. The word beginning is intentionally used by Mark as an attention getter. So what's so important? (laughs) What's so important is the next few words. The gospel of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. That's what's so important. Now, this word gospel, which if you're a note taker, just is two words, good news. It just means good news. This word gospel has some history uh, that predates Mark, Mark's usage here. Uh, the Bible didn't invent the word gospel. 
but it co-opts it. It uh, takes it as its own and begins to use it for its purposes. And as we all know today, the Bible pretty much is owner of the word gospel. I mean, the Bible's pretty much taken ownership of it. But when Mark was writing, it wasn't that way, and it was a new word. In fact, many believe that Mark was probably the first to take that word, gospel, and begin to apply it, as we'll see today. So here's how it was used before the Bible and, and when Mark got hold of it. Two main ways. Number one, in literature outside of the Bible, in Greek literature, this word gospel was used to announce a, a good report from the battlefield. It'd be like saying, hey, good news, we're winning. It'd be like the messenger comes back from the battlefield, comes back to your hometown and says, hey, good news, hey, gospel, we won, we're winning. That's one of the main ways that it was used. The second was that it was used as an announcement of the birth of someone important. So it was used in the battlefield, but it was also used as the announcement of the birth of somebody who was quite important. And it was only used for important people. In fact, in 9 BC, within a decade of Jesus' birth, uh, archaeologists have found a calendar inscription that hailed the birth of Caesar Augustus, which had come previously, uh, the first emperor of Rome. They hailed the birth of Caesar Augustus as good news. The calendar said, and, and I'm quoting, and, and listen, to, listen to how... This is a lot like what Mark is about to say here in verse 1. Augustus' birthday, it said, and this is a quote, signaled the beginning of good news for the world. So, so, so Mark comes along and says, you think that's good news? You think Caesar Augustus is important? This, this is important. Now there's one more important thing to tell you about this word gospel. In the Greco-Roman world, every single time this word appears that we have evidence of, it's in the plural. It's in the plural. Meaning that a gospel was just one piece of good news among many pieces of good news. It's just one among many. But we get to the New Testament we get to Mark's usage here in the first verse of Mark, and it's not in the plural, it's in the singular. And every time it shows up in the New Testament, it's in the singular, meaning this is the good news of Jesus, about which there is no other good news, it's just this. There is no better news. The good news that defines all reality is Jesus. So when Mark introduces us to his account, Notice that verse 1 doesn't say the gospel of Mark, as we call it. He titles his work, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Which is to say, the gospel is not just a, a data point among many. But the gospel is the singular, most important piece of news in all history. And that gospel is a person. One person, Jesus Christ, and he's the Son of God. Now jump down to verse 14, where this singular most important piece of news in all history begins to actually speak. This is, this is the gospel that is a person, Jesus, as we've established in Mark 1. That's part of what Mark was saying there. This is the gospel beginning to preach 
the gospel. He says this in verse 14. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. So we've just said that the good news of the gospel was a person, Jesus. But here in verse 14, we've got the good news proclaiming or announcing the good news. Jesus, the good news, comes into Galilee proclaiming or announcing the good news. So listen closely to what's going on here. Notice this. The good news that is Jesus, because remember we said that the good news, the gospel is a person. The good news that is Jesus is also the good news about Jesus. And here's the key that we'll begin to see. The good news that is, is Jesus is also the good news about Jesus in a way that can be communicated from person to person. This is huge. This may sound simple. You may take this for granted, but please don't. The good news that is Jesus has now become the good news about Jesus that can be communicated from person to person. Look at verse 15. The time is fulfilled. This is Jesus speaking. The time is fulfilled. That's in what we call the perfect tense, meaning it's happened and there are ongoing consequences for it. So it has been and is being fulfilled. The time was fulfilled and the kingdom of God, a concept we'll continue to unpack a lot in this series, but let me just mention for the note takers for now, uh, the kingdom of God in basic terms means the rule and the reign of God. The rule and the reign of God. In every sense of the term, every place, every nook and cranny, every area of your heart, the rule and the reign of God. So Jesus comes saying, quote, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at Hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. So to say the kingdom of God is at hand doesn't mean it's coming soon or in the future. If you have the CEV, uh, go get a new version. It doesn't mean it's coming soon or in the future. It doesn't mean that at all, so get that out of your head. I know so many of us think, oh, it's at hand. I mean, it's, it's coming that's not actually what Jesus is saying here. There's a good version that said, time's up. God's kingdom is here. You see, to say that the kingdom of God is at hand is, is radical. Jesus is standing here speaking to people saying, the kingdom of God is at hand, is, is a way of saying, you can touch it. Just imagine Jesus standing here saying what he does. In verse 15, to you, the kingdom is here. This is as important as the creation of the world. Because what he's about to say next means salvation from sin is possible in the here and now because of the arrival of Jesus. That's why he's able to say in the next portion there, I think this is in verse 15, yeah, he says, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. The content of the message is simple, turn from sin, turn toward Jesus, repent, believe, turn away from darkness, 
Turn toward light. Turn away from your own kingdom that's a failure and leads you down to a path you don't want to go to my kingdom that will lead you to life eternal. Repent and believe. Turn from sin. Turn toward Jesus. That's the gospel right there. And he's saying it in an interesting way. We've talked about this section being uh, the gospel preaches the gospel because he says repent and believe in the gospel. And he's standing there. So he's saying repent and believe in me and repent and believe in the truth that I'm delivering for you. Which is to say, which is to say that his preaching has as its object both the recognition of the person of Jesus and the coming of the kingdom. The coming of the kingdom that makes available repentance and belief. Now, I want you at this point, there are lots of things we could say about these power-packed words from all over Scripture, but I want you just to notice something significant about the movement of Mark here in chapter 1. Something significant about the movement of Mark that tells us who we are and what we are to do. Notice how the kingdom moves. This may sound simple. Um, It is simple. It's not simplistic. But it's really actually incredibly profound truth. The kingdom of God is a movement that spreads among people. Jesus didn't come with billboards. He didn't come putting on Facebook posts. He didn't come taking out ads. He didn't come hustling. He didn't come selling a gospel. He came bringing a movement of the kingdom of God from person to person to person. Just look in the next few verses when he calls the disciples to do what he's doing. Next few verses, 16 through 20. We're not going to make a whole lot of comment about it as we normally do. We're just going to read it and then make some comment afterwards. It says this, verses 16 and following. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon. Another word for that is Peter. You may be familiar with that one. He saw Peter and Andrew, Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James the son of Zebedee and John his brother who were in the boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. Jesus doesn't say anything like, Builder of your own kingdom. Establisher of your own security. Pursuer of your own American dreams. He says nothing silly and fruitless and time-bound like that. He says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Now we've said that the, the kingdom of God goes from person to person. Notice... Here in verses 16 to 20, 
There is no special summons, no supernatural work or miracle, at least on the outside, on the face of it. Of course, the Holy Spirit is working this whole time in their hearts. That's why they respond. Yes, I get that. Don't worry. But there is no mighty sermon or or special summons. It is four common men being called by Jesus in the simplest of terms, in plain speech, to do what he's doing. The kingdom of God is a movement that spreads among people from person to person. Jesus doesn't come hustling the kingdom. He doesn't come selling the kingdom. He came proving it in sections we didn't even read in Mark 1 that we'll get to later on, things like this. He proved his power and the kingdom's arrival with miracles of healing. Matthew 12, 28 says, The kingdom of God has come upon you if the Spirit of God is the way I cast out demons. He said, if, if I'm casting out demons, then you'll know that the kingdom of God has come upon you. So he doesn't come hustling, doesn't come selling. He comes proving that it had arrived. And we are called, friends, we are called to do the same. To prove that the kingdom has arrived in us. With lives that show that a miracle of healing has taken place inside of us. We are called to follow Jesus into that same work of preaching the gospel. Which is to say, (laughs) Jesus actually expects that what he has done in preaching the coming of the kingdom, in preaching turning from sin and toward belief in Jesus, Jesus actually expects that what he has just done will continue through people without him around. There is no plan B. There is no plan B for communicating the gospel in the world. People are his plan to continue the movement of the kingdom of God. So, if you follow Christ, if you follow Christ and believe you are somehow exempt from this call to preach the gospel, then you are delusional. I looked at the definition. Don't worry. If you follow Christ and you somehow believe you are exempt from the call that he gave the first disciples to preach the gospel, then you are delusional, in some manner deceived about who you are and what you're meant to be. We believe all sorts of dumb lies. That our satisfaction comes from all sorts of of time-bound, idiotic, pathetic, not fulfilling things that tell us who we are and what we're supposed to be. What rubbish! We believe silly lies like, I will be happy if I have this. (laughs) Or I do this. Then I will have justified myself in the world and to my friends, 
and to my family and to my dad I didn't have, to my mom I didn't have. We believe delusional, pathetic, time-bound, selfish kingdom lies that our happiness will be found in something other than the simple call to do what Jesus did. (laughs) The most satisfying thing in which we could ever participate, friends, is the kingdom of God being made known in the lives of people. There is no plan B. People preaching the gospel is the plan. So stop being delusional about your life's purpose being something else. You can challenge me. Go ahead and look through the Gospels. Just go ahead and read through the Gospels and see what Jesus does to call people to do what he did. There's an interesting feature about fishing that used to happen in Jesus' day but helps us understand this a little bit. We've just read from Mark 1, and in verses 16 to 20, we learn that Peter, Andrew, James, and John were fishermen. In the first four he called. He says, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Well, the common way that fishing was done back then was with this large circular net. It was probably about 20 feet around, real big, heavy, thick rope that became even heavier when it got uh, waterlogged. And, and it had metal bars or rocks that were tied around the outside that helped take it down to the bottom and it would grab fish. And we know that this is actually the kind of net uh, that was being used here in the text because Mark uses the right word for this huge 20 feet around circular net in verse 16. Now sometimes, sometimes one man, if the fish weren't all that good and they were in shallow water, uh, one man might be able to, to take up the net by himself. But usually they went in twos because it's big enough and it's large enough and, and enough fish get in there that you have to have two to manage it. So you can't just manage it alone. But that's not really the interesting point. The interesting point of it is this. After this net would sink to the bottom, because that's how it would catch fish, you know what the fishermen have to do to retrieve the net and gather up fish? They have to actually swim to the bottom and get wet. When Jesus Jesus calls us to become fishers of men, he's calling us, to get wet, to go where the fish are, to go where the fish are. Most of us are sitting up on the boat going, hope the water is warm. That's where most of us are. Be real with yourself. In fact, most of us like this romanticized view of petrified, non-participant, pew spectator so that we never have to get wet to come over here to be participants in the kingdom of God being made known in the lives of people. Some of us hardly even know people are fishing. 
The message today is really pretty simple. Joy and satisfaction and seeing the kingdom of God transform the lives of people is something you see when you become a swimmer and a diver. Jesus didn't call you to sit around being a spectator. Preaching the gospel is about catching fish. It's about becoming a fisher of people. And the movement of the kingdom is from person to person to person. That's who you are. That's what you do. You help people find and follow Jesus. So the message is really pretty simple. Please, I'm begging you, for your own sake, and for the sake of the glory of God be made known, get out of here. Go do what Jesus did. Stop sitting on the sidelines, watching everybody else enjoy the water while you're dry, thinking you're having a good time, when actually you're missing out on the kingdom being made known in somebody's life as a participant in the movement of the gospel from person to person. Let's pray, friends.